Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Danger from Within, with a message titled, The Certainty of the Final Judgment. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. If you're struggling with feelings that you've been wronged and wondering if God cares, and beginning to think there's no justice, let's set the record straight, shall we? No one is getting away with anything, and that includes you, my friend. I'm referring to a very simple verse, Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. See, that's not hard to understand, is it? Or listen to what Jesus said on the matter, Luke 12, verse 3. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. There are going to be no secrets on the day of judgment. There'll be no special dispensations given to the rich and powerful. There'll be no advantage to the good speaker who's always been able to explain himself or herself out of everything. In place of all that passes for justice now, there will be perfect justice from a perfectly righteous and all-knowing God. So let me say it again. No one's getting away with anything. You know, yesterday I began to explain 2 Peter chapter 2. See, chapter 1 is the chapter encouraging believers to add virtues to their faith. God has called all of us to a holy life. But chapter 2, which gets to the heart of the reason why Peter's writing this letter, is to expose false teachers within the church. See, the second chapter begins by reminding us that false teachers have always been there to subvert the people of God, whether it was the false prophets of the Old Testament or the various false teachers that have arisen in the early church to contradict the teachings of the Lord's apostles. And then Peter adds that false teachers both live in an ungodly way and then that they also encourage others to live in the same fashion. But when we last left off in our study, we heard Peter say their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction will not sleep. And that's to say the final judgment is a certainty. It's going to come precisely on time. But here we can almost hear the false teachers and the doubters raising their voices. Are you sure about that? Because how are we to know that it's coming? Is there any evidence that this is a thing that we should fear? You know, I recently watched a YouTube clip about someone who had recently decided that there was no God. And while he admitted that this made his life to a large extent lacking in any significant meaning, he said he found that matter to be freeing. He could chart his own course. No judgment was coming. And since that was true, he could decide to create his own meaning, even if in the grand scheme of things, it really didn't matter at all. After all, there's no one waiting on the other end to whom he must one day give an account. While that is the viewpoint of the atheist, I think it's also the viewpoint of a great many people in the church today. I mean, they might never articulate it, but they also don't live their lives as though one day every careless word they've ever spoken or every wicked deed that they've ever done in the darkness is going to be exposed. You see, the integrity that the final judgment brings to all of our lives is missing from their lives. And that's why they don't live in the light. And so the real question remains, how are we to know that the final judgment is really coming? How are we to know that everyone must give an account of himself or of herself to God? Indeed, since even the Christian who is forgiven by Christ must also stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Is this a matter that should occupy our thoughts, yes or no? And I suggest to you that a great many churchgoers are not occupied by that thought. I mean, how can they be? They're not quick to repent. They're not quick to plead with God to help them overcome temptation. They don't seem to long for virtue, for the knowledge of God, for self-control, for steadfastness, for godliness, for brotherly affection and love. They seem to live for their own sensuality or their own desire to fulfill them. They talk about getting the most out of this life without ever mentioning that they're living their lives to get the most out of eternity. Perhaps they really have concluded that judgment isn't coming after all. See, the false teachers in Peter's day did not think it, but Peter did. Peter said their destruction is not sleeping. So let's read our section today, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10a. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now, you might have noticed, because it's really quite obvious, that Peter uses the word if four times in this passage, followed by, in verse 9, the word then. So this is an if-then argument. And the technical word for that is that this is a conditional statement. If you ever had a philosophy class on logic, you'll recognize conditional statements. If the premises are true and sound, then the conclusions must follow. Or if the conditions are true, then the conclusion must follow. So let's use an example. If our country is a democracy, and if the elections are fairly held, and if the majority vote for John Doe, then John Doe, then John Doe, will be the next prime minister. That is, if the premises hold, the conclusion follows. Now, Peter gives us four if statements, and it will be followed by a conclusion about the final judgment that, as we're going to see, will fall into Not one, but two necessary conclusions, and those conclusions will be about the final judgment. So let's begin by examining each of the four premises. Here's the first, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, that statement is interesting. It's also controversial. There are those who think that Peter is following a Jewish traditional interpretation of Genesis 6, where we are told that the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. The Jewish tradition says that angels were having sex with women. Now, I, for my part, think that the traditional Jewish interpretation is just dead wrong. Angels are spirit beings. They're not made of flesh as we are. Jesus said they don't marry. They're not given in marriage. Angels don't procreate. They don't have sex. So what's Genesis 6 all about? Well, it's speaking about the sons of God, which are the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the sons of men, which are the unregenerate. So I see no reason to believe that Peter's first if statement is talking about Genesis 6. Rather, 
Peter's talking about the angels that sinned before the creation of the world and thus became demons. So what do we make of Peter's statement that they were cast into hell? Well, interestingly enough, the Greek doesn't say they were cast into Gehenna, which is the normal word translated for hell. Instead, it says they were cast into, the Greek word is tartarosis, which means the underworld. And I make mention of that because Peter doesn't say the angels were thrown into the place of final judgment. That's not Peter's point. Final judgment is yet to come for them. Instead, they were removed from their place in heaven, and they were thrown into the underworld, and in that abode, they continue to reside. So let's explain. The angels go out from heaven on assignment from God. The demons go out from gloomy dungeons in which they live on assignment from Lucifer. Their status has changed. They've gone from the beauty and glory of heaven to gloomy darkness. While they do activity on earth, they also have restrained power. Their power and glory has been stripped from them, and they remain that way until the final judgment. Now comes Peter's second if statement. That's found in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Peter moves from the fall of the angels to the destruction of the ancient world before the flood. You'll have to imagine such a world. Now, it it wasn't as beautiful as the world that the angels had when they fell from grace, but it must have been a marvelous world nonetheless. And I say that because in our world, where it's a very rare thing for anyone to live to 100 years of age, and by that, I'm going to say that knowledge and technology is stunted. You see, given the short lifespans of human beings today, our ability to develop and exploit our technology is limited by our lifespan. So what would it have been like when human beings lived 900 years and more instead of 80 years or more? See, I would imagine that the world at the time of Noah must have been technologically advanced far more than the world we've experienced. In that ancient world, says Peter, that wondrous world was not spared by God. So think about that. The Back to the Bible Canada blog page has recently seen some exciting changes. So in addition to Dr. John's blogs, we'll now be having regular monthly blog contributions from special ministry guests and friends of the ministry. So make sure to receive the Back to the Bible Canada, Dr. John and Company blogs each week by signing up for our audio mail or download our Back to the Bible Canada app or just visit backtothebible.ca every week. Timely, interesting, biblical perspective sharing thoughts about faith, life and culture with the Bible at the very center. To check out the Dr. John and Company blog page, visit backtothebible.ca or Call us at 1-800-663-2425 for more information. And remember to ask for your free ministry resource, 10 Questions About Money Matters, during the month of August. Did you notice that Peter uses the phrase, did not spare, a second time? That is, rather than extending mercy and hope, God withheld it. He did not spare. 
And even though in the case of fallen angels, their number was only a portion of all the angels, you see, in their case, it wasn't the majority of angels that fell. But in the case of the flood, it was the entire world that God did not spare. See, that's one of the reasons that Peter uses this example, because this, unlike the example of the angels, is a global example. It's a foreshadowing of the judgment to come. The message of the flood is also the message that we find in Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So that's to say, we never know when God's forbearance and patience comes to an end. Abraham was told that his descendants wouldn't inherit the promised land immediately because the sin of the current inhabitants of the land had not yet reached its full measure. So when is the full measure of sin? Answer, we just don't know. But we do know that God gives time for repentance, and then that opportunity passes by. God will not spare. That, then, is the story of Noah. Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness, and we need to stop and ask, well, what's that? The word translated as herald is a word that refers to someone who preaches. When Paul used that word in 1 Timothy 1.11, he says, I was appointed a preacher. That's the very same word. Noah was a preacher. So what did he preach? And the answer is, he preached righteousness. Now, it is true that the book of Genesis makes no mention of Noah's preaching activity. But we have to ask, how would it have been possible for Noah to remain quiet about what God had told him would happen on the earth? Why was he building the ark? And so Noah began to preach, and his emphasis was on righteousness or on the righteousness of God. God's a God of justice. He's going to hold the entire world to account for their sin. And we've got to imagine Noah preaching that kind of a message. Of course, we also have to imagine that he had no converts. We have to imagine a man who's constantly being ridiculed and disbelieved, and yet we have to assume that his preaching didn't depend on how many converts he would boast, but on the assignment God had given him. Of course, Noah did have people that listened. They were the members of his own family. They were his wife, his three sons, including the women the sons had married. But it must have seemed that the message he was proclaiming was an impossible message. I mean, given what must have been an amazing ancient world, a technologically advanced society, it was natural to believe that such a world would not and could not end. It would just go on human self-assurance must have been felt everywhere. We are, people must have thought, the masters of our own fate. And so when the warnings had come to an end and when Noah's last call to repentance had gone out, when God's patience was exhausted, that entire world was destroyed, leaving absolutely no remnant behind. And Peter has given us two if statements, two conditions. Now comes the third one in verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And the key word here is the word example. They are an example, says Peter. We need to consider their example. So let's do just that. The first thing we learn about Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis is that there was at that time when they existed, Genesis 13:10 tells us that those cities were well watered, 
like the garden of the Lord. See, the text is telling us that at one time those cities were so beautiful, they resembled the Garden of Eden. Now, if you go to that place today, you're going to find an area in the vicinity of the Dead Sea. It's a place of fierce heat. It's a place where precious little grows. It's sand. It's desert. That's all it is. But not then. Those twin cities were prosperous then. It was a prosperity that led to a great sense of self-confidence. And then one day three men appeared at Abraham's tent in the cool of the day. And the Lord, who is one of them, indicates that he's not going to hide from Abraham what he's about to do. He's going to destroy the cities. And several lessons have to be learned because it soon becomes clear that there are not ten righteous people left in those cities. We notice that they're sexually immoral. See, when the angels show up to drag Lot and his family out of the city, well, his house is surrounded by men who think that the angels are two men on a journey and they want to have sex with them. And since that time, sodomy has become a term to describe homosexuality. And yeah, homosexuality was found in Sodom, but so were every other form of sexual sin. Sex was then just sensuality to be desired, not the product of a lifelong marriage covenant. The society of those cities had forgotten about family, and it was everyone's personal sexual tastes that mattered. But the prophet Ezekiel says that's not all that was going on there. Ezekiel 16 says they were also arrogant, filled with pride. They had an excess of food. They were prosperous and they were at ease and they didn't give to the poor and the needy. Now, when Peter mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, he does not mention the specific sins, but rather that they had become so sinful that God did two things. Number one, he destroyed them. He condemned them to extinction. No one was left. And second, he made them an example of what happens to unrepentant people. Now, we've had three if statements. All of them are negative. Now comes the fourth, and it's positive, verses 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. See, that's the statement. God brought judgment, but he rescued Lot. Now, for those who'd struggle whether or not Lot was really all that righteous, you need to consider it in context. You see, when the men of the city threatened to rape the two angels, Lot is the one that says, don't do this wicked thing. And the people of the city say, look, this man who's a foreigner thinks he's our judge. See, they never approved of Lot's behavior, but Lot never approved of their behavior. See, we know that Lot had his own sins, but he's portrayed as a man who would never agree with the morals of that city. Indeed, the immorality was tormenting his soul. See, that's the difference between him and them. Instead of adopting their values, Lot, deep in his heart, rejects their values. Sensuality is not a thing to be welcomed, said Lot. It's a thing to be rejected. And we have to imagine him rejecting the values of his day. And on the basis of that, he experiences inner turmoil mixed with sorrow. And of course, as we know, Lot was spared. And Peter is then using four if statements, trying to lead his readers to a conclusion. Do you think, he asks, that there's no evidence that the final day of judgment is coming? A judgment that will judge the behavior of every single human being. Would you forget how God judged the angels? or how he judged the world at Noah's time, how he destroyed the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, leaving no survivor. Will you forget that in the stories of the flood and the twin cities, that only the righteous survived? And if that was true then, Peter, then, yes, then, 
That should lead you to a conclusion. Indeed, it should lead you to two conclusions. The first is in verse 9. It's that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, or that on the last day, the day of judgment, God will rescue the righteous. And the second conclusion is that God will keep the unrighteous under punishment, meaning that he will remember their deeds and never sweep them away. The time will not erase what they've done. Their punishment will be meted out at the last judgment. And that's still not done, Peter adds. That's especially true for those who indulge in unbridled lust, as well as people who despise authority. That is, they despise God's laws and his commands. They think nothing of breaking them. And then let me, in conclusion, speak directly to all my listeners. The day of repentance, well, that's now, isn't it? The evidence is conclusive. God is not lenient regarding your sin. Your only hope? Repentance. Seeking God for mercy. Taking hold of the cross. Beseeching Christ to save you. Saying to Jesus, save me, have mercy on me. Grant to me a new heart. See, don't accept the lie. The lie is that judgment will never come. History teaches you that judgment has come in the past. The time for a cavalier attitude towards God's laws must end for you. If you call yourself a Christian but wantedly carry on in sin, your heart should be disturbed right now. You should be alarmed. And if you've never thought of your culpability before God, you also should be alarmed. Judgment is coming. And there have been times in human history when God has poured out his anger on whole civilizations. That's a lesson. And above all, Never listen to false teachers who tell you it's not so, who never warn you about the culpability of your sin and that you must discontinue living as you do. In fact, seek repentance in God's grace. He's in wonderful love, giving you time to repent. Thanks, John, for your messages this week. You know, I think I know the answer to this one, but. Why don't you think we talk more about the final judgment? And why should we? I think we don't talk about it more because I think what's been lacking is a sense, first of all, of the holiness of God. And then let me put it this way, and a sense of the sinfulness of sin. Um, I don't think that we're horrified by sin because we haven't stood before the holy God and been overawed by his holiness. So I'm going to say this. Uh, the, the judgment that we're not talking about today, we're not talking about it because we, we have this sneaking suspicion that people shouldn't be judged. And so I, I think it's important for us to return to those themes and to stress them. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Danger From Within, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You know, there's certain sensitive topics some of us tend to avoid discussing, even with our loved ones. Money is definitely one of those. But since the Bible certainly does not shy away from discussing the matter of money, then neither should we. That's why we're so excited to share with you our newest resource called 10 Questions About Money Matters. It's a short booklet based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money and will help you address financial issues from a biblical perspective. We're confident this resource will provide financial guidance, helping us to become better stewards of the resources that God has graced us with. 
We're thrilled to offer you this booklet for free for the whole month of August. To request your copy or to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.